I don't approve of this, but how can I stop you? Welcome to the Nude Root Dude Podcast. Please don't. Man needs to be able to see you when he's podcasting. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the Speedster, whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. You know, I was so close to the situation I couldn't see the Carplusen Forest, if not for the Yetis. Because <laughs> I, I, No, 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 no. I Yeti. get the joke. I get the joke. I'm just not laughing. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. When you tap that joke of Matt's, it does one point of damage to you. <laughs> to everyone at the table. We, right, all, yeah. we, all get, we all get dumber. That was fantastic. I like that. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What is our topic this week, fellas? Counterintuitive Commanders. Counterintuitive commanders, like plus one, plus one counterintuitive commanders? No, counterintuitive, like minus one, minus one, because we're going against the plus one, plus one, right? Wait, counterspell intuitive commanders? I hope yes. none of those are correct, because if so, all the prep work I did here is for naught. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time, Dana. Let's it be would, real. Not, it would <laughs> not be the first time. Nope. Yeah, so we want to talk about counterintuitive commanders, the commanders that you look at and kind of make you scratch your head and say, huh, does that work in this format? Or also kind of a separate category, commanders that you look at and you think that they would go for one particular strategy, but actually maybe favor a different strategy that is a little less obvious. That is what we would like to talk about today. But before we get started, as always, I have to ask how your guys' week was. Especially you, Dana, because you seem to be recovering from GV Madison, is what I am understanding. I was. I was down at Madison for the better part of the weekend. I went down Friday morning and came back uh, pretty late Sunday afternoon and basically just jammed casual commander games the entire time I was there. Uh, and I had a really good time. I played, I don't know, like 25 or 30 games, I think, over the course of the weekend, which is insane. Yeah. And they were almost all really good games. I think everyone had a kind of a commiserate power level. I think that was really nice to see. I got to see a lot of interesting oddball commanders, not just kind of the, the, the most popular ones off EDH Rec. You got to see people doing some kind of deep dives, which was really nice. And everyone was communicative. There was a lot of discussion about power level before games. It was just a really good experience with a whole bunch of random people. That's fantastic. And, I mean, 30 commander games, that sounds like heaven. Yeah, I, I probably could have gotten a few more, but I spent probably three hours when I first got there just kind of walking around and warning people that you guys were going to be at Magic Fest <laughs> Kansas City. So Rude. I kind of wanted to, I wanted to prep everybody that was part of the the crew that you guys are going to be on site. So I think I kind of have everyone kind of, you know, in a mental place where they're going to be ready for that in a couple even, weeks. Even though I don't appreciate that comment, I don't disagree with your comment. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's a certain logic to it all. There, yeah, there, is, there is logic, yes. That's really great. Matt, what about you? Any fun games recently? Have any new cards from War of the Spark affected your decks or your games so far? I have not gotten to play with any War of the Spark cards, but... 
you guys will actually be proud of me. I bought to War of the Spark cards, and it hasn't been six months since the set came out. So <laughs> nice <laughs> progress. Yeah, you are notoriously slow at setting I new cards into your decks. So this is this is good. This is good, buddy. This is very good. Yes, I um, I bought a couple Sahili's because um, I got to pad the numbers for Sahili being the most popular commander because right. I want to be right again. <laughs> so, um, but I did buy a couple Sahilis. I got a Jace because Niv-Mizzet and combos and why not? And then I bought actually two entire middle school decks for like 50 bucks, which middle school is kind of that new. It's not quite old school, but it's not modern. It's another casual format. Uh, and I, I, I love me some casual formats in addition to my, my competitive ones. So yeah, it'll be good. I, I am all loaded up for Kansas city. I don't think I'm going to play a s- single game of sanctioned magic in Kansas city. And I could not be more excited. <laughs> exactly. We're here for the commander. So how about we get right into that show topic about now? What do you say, guys? Let's do it. All right. So counterintuitive commanders. We've split these up into two different sections. The first one are basically the commanders that you wouldn't really expect to work, but do. And then we also have another section later on about those commanders that look like they want strategy X, but actually prefer strategy Y. But for now, let's talk about some commanders that when you look at them at first blush, they don't seem to really make a move in EDH, but yet they actually can lead compelling decks. Matt, start us off with our first commander. So our first commander is Mishra, Artificer Prodigy. Uh, Mishra is a human artificer for one in Grixis, which is a blue, a black, and a red for a 4-4. And Mishra reads, uh, you may play, an, or whenever, excuse me, whenever you play an artifact spell, you may search your graveyard, hand, and or library for a card with the same name as that spell and put it into play. If you do, search your library this way, shuffle it. Now this sounds completely intuitive, probably the most doesn't make sense for commander play or commander commander, I should say um, (laughs) of all of them out there. It it doesn't make sense for a singleton format. Yeah. It wants to find other copies of your artifacts, but we're only playing one copy. How could this at all be good for commander? So there's a couple ways you can do it. Uh, A big one is to use Thada Adele Acquisitor, uh, which is a legendary uh, merfolk that you can use. And basically whenever uh, Thada Adele deals combat damage to a player, you can search their library for an artifact and then you can play it that turn. So you can do cool stuff like steal their soul ring. And then when you steal their soul ring, you search up your own soul ring or you steal their, I don't know, Grixis obelisk or whatever the, the mana dorks are that Dana loves so much. Uh, <laughs> Seems unlikely that they'll have one of those. Maybe an actual artifact that people well, if run, they like listen to Dana, lightning greaves. Not. Yeah, they Manolith. might have a lightning greaves. Manolith, first and foremost. Yes, yes. Oh, please no. <laughs> But yeah, so you can use that to steal their artifacts that you have your own copies of and then put them into play that way. Uh, another way is you can use stuff like Possibility Storm or Blood Funnel. Uh, Blood Funnel is an enchantment for one and a black, and it just says non-creature spells you play cost two less to play, but also reads whenever you play a non-creature spell, counter that spell unless you sacrifice a creature, which normally doesn't sound great, but with Mishra, you actually want Blood Funnel to counter your artifacts because then... Due to that ability, you can search your graveyard because the way the, the triggers happen, it gets countered first, and then Mishra's trigger resolves, which let you search which lets you search your graveyard for that artifact and put it into play. So it's a really nifty little trick. You just have to build your, your deck a certain way to get around that restriction that actually makes it crazy powerful. 
Yeah, that getting a discount on Blood Funnel can certainly be kind of cool. Planar Chaos is another one that could counter your spell, but since it ends up in the graveyard, Mishra will go and fetch it again for you. Possibility Storm you'd also mentioned, which will put the card back into your deck and turn it into a different artifact, but then Mishra can also go search for that artifact that's in your deck now and put that into play too, so you're sort of doubling up on your spells, and you're able to cheat costs in different ways or cheat around your artifacts being countered. It's a very bizarre thing, but it actually does some impressive work when you're playing a Grixis artifact strategy because he can go and find a bunch of them for you or make sure that they sneak into play in really un, uh, like unexpected ways, and it's just really cool. Right, I've seen people remand their own spells in a Mishra deck because they wanted just to get it into play. And when Mishra's ability puts it into play, it's uncounterable as well. So stuff like remand and all those kind of things that bounce spells back to your hand, it's actually kind of nifty. Yeah, so that is one of our first counterintuitive commanders. You wouldn't expect a dude who says, I want multiple copies of things to actually work here in Commander, but it actually can, and people can sneak some artifacts into play and be really surprisingly effective. Let's move on to our next counterintuitive commander. This one is Ronus the Indomitable. This was uh, one of the gods from Amonkhet. Two and a green for a 5-5 legendary creature god. He's got death touch and indestructible, and he looks like an awesome snake dude. Ronus the Indomitable can't attack or block, though, unless you control another creature with power 4 or greater. And he's got an activated ability, two and a green, another target creature gets plus 2, plus 0, and gains trample until end of turn. I mean, there are a lot of cool things about Ronus when we first saw him, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm fairly certain that everyone's impression upon first sight of Ronus was, eh, I'm not sure that this will actually be better than other mono green stuff we've already got in the format. Yeah, it was really easy to dismiss as just a not-as-good Nylea. Right, exactly. But Ronus the Indomitable is actually pretty indomitable indeed. One of the things that people can do with Ronus, since he's a death touch indestructible, even if he can't attack or block unless you have other creatures, what he can do is be death touch and indestructible. So if you play cards like Prey Upon or Rabid Bite or any of those green fight spells, your indestructible death toucher can use those green fight spells to just kill any other creature that you want. And suddenly, you don't have a mono green deck, you actually have a mono black deck, because green suddenly has access to a bunch of really efficient creature removal spells that let this amazing commander and all of its cronies just get in whenever it would like to and stomp people's faces all over. Yeah, yeah. and then oftentimes it gets paired with lifelink equipment as well, so when you're doing that fighting, you're pushing your life total higher and higher, making you tougher to kill on crackbacks as well. Um, plus, you're leaving Ronus back as a non-attacker while you're doing all of this, presumably, unless you really need to swing through. So it makes for a kind of a really super weird, interesting deck that you just don't see in green. Exactly. There's a reason that green doesn't get ridiculous removal spells, it, that it usually has to rely on fight spells, but those fight spells don't really make much of an impact in Commander because you can't always rely upon having your Commander definitely be able to beat stuff and survive. But with Ronus, you can, and that makes green, it gives it quite a dangerous edge, which is really darn cool. All right, up next, Selenia Dark Angel, another counterintuitive Commander, who doesn't seem like it would work, but Dana, tell us why she does. Yeah, Selenia Dark Angel, three white-black, five mana total for a legendary creature angel. She's a 3-3 three, three with flying, which is relatively underwhelming and she has an ability that on first blush seems pretty pointless you can pay two life and return selenia dark angel to its owner's hand so 
as designed, the point of this card was to have this commander, or not even a commander, because this was, you know, pre-commander, this creature that was really difficult to kill because you could just return it to your hand whenever anyone targeted it or tried to remove it, or, or there was a board wipe or whatever. And that kind of put in with the lore of the character as well, where she was kind of unkillable. However, the ability to pay two life to return her to your hand doesn't require mana and doesn't require being tapped. You can just pay life. And what that lets you do is pay as much life as you want to pay, which would normally be a really, really bad thing to just dump a bunch of life into an ability repeatedly, unless you're going to swap your life total with someone else's. So Selenia winds up being kind of the go-to premier commander for decks built around the strategy of knocking your life total to really low amounts, if not negative amounts, if you're running some cards that keep you from losing the game, and then swapping that life total with somebody else who doesn't have the ability to survive being a negative five life or something. Right, and that can be achieved with a bunch of different cards, especially in white, like Axis of Mortality or Reverse the Sands. Yeah, Phyrexian on the Life does it too. Um, there's a couple of different ways. Platinum Angel is oftentimes a card used in that deck. There's just a bunch of different ways to keep yourself from losing the game and make somebody else lose when you do that swing. Yeah, you can even use things like Near-Death Experience, which is an upkeep trigger that wins you the game if you're at one life. Well, you know, when you start at 40, it doesn't seem very practical that you'd ever be able to reliably end up at exactly one life. But with Selenia, if you're ever at any amount of odd life, you can just use her ability in response to itself a whole bunch and then go immediately down to one, and then you'll win with Near-Death Experience. This commander that doesn't seem like it should do a whole lot because it just, you know, pays your life and goes away, it's actually surprisingly effective when you start using a bunch of these different strategies. Yeah, and, and I've played against a couple of different Selenia decks. Um, I played one actually this weekend in Madison, and we had it in the shop I play in for quite a while, and it's a really dangerous deck because if Selenia is in play, you can just lose the game if the person top decks the right card. Like, they'll bring in whatever, you know, life swap spell it is, whether it's, like, Reverse of Sands or Mirror Universe or whatever, and the ability to just drop down to one or none life and swap that over to you and then either, you know, tap a Pestilence or just do one damage to you through a whole host of different means, you can just die if you're not ready for it. So it makes for a really interesting deck. I, I will yeah. say, though, I have, once upon a time, I did see a Selenia Dark Angel Angel Tribal deck Hmm. That sounds interesting. I mean, it was, it, I don't know if it was good, but I actually, it was kind of cool <laughs> to see. So, but yeah, primarily the, you're just going to see all kinds of wonky life swap shenanigans here. And you're going to see these cards, this is similar to Mishra in that you're oftentimes running cards that just don't see play anywhere else. Right. So our next counterintuitive commander, also an angel. Yeah, Tiana Ship's Caretaker. This was this card's about a year old. It came out in Dominaria last spring. She's also five mana, but this time it's Boros instead of Orzhov, three red-white. And she's an angel artificer. She has flying and first strike in addition to being a 3-3, same as Selenia. And Tiana says, whenever an aura or equipment you control is put into the graveyard from the battlefield, you may return that card to its owner's hand at the beginning of the next end step. That seems really, really underwhelming. A little bit. Yeah, uh, it is Boros, I have to right? Agree. <laughs> well, it's Boros. <laughs> and upon a first blush, you kind of look at it and wonder if it's going to try to be doing Hannah Ship's Navigator kind of things. Where, but that's not really what it does because it's so specific to auras and equipment. 
Right, and it seems just a little lackluster, especially I think there are even weird timing restrictions where if you were to put them on your creatures, your auras might actually end up going to the graveyard if they were enchanting uh, Tiana herself or something. Like, sometimes she doesn't always get the auras back in really weird rules cases. Like, just everything about it just kind of reads underwhelming, starting with her stats. But how is this commander actually quite viable? Well, she gets played kind of as a prison commander because all those auras, like, you know, pacifism being the main example, are ones that you can put on a creature. Normally, if something happens and that creature dies, those are just gone. Not with Tiana. Those are going to come back to your hand and let you recast them and reuse them whenever you need to. Right. She ends up being the pacifism queen, and that kind of is a way for her to keep up on card advantage because, yeah, you're just, you know, freezing a bunch of other people's creatures, you're pacifisming them, you're arresting them, you're putting a bunch of those on them, and then whenever those creatures, you know, finally perish, you've got a bunch of cards back in your hand, and you can control the board again, or do political favors for people in that way. And that is a surprising way for her to keep up on card advantage, as opposed to the usual thing that happens where you would lose your auras. Yeah, it, it, it kind of covers the bigness, it, it covers for the biggest weakness in that particular play style. Yeah, definitely really cool. Our final commander that you wouldn't always expect to work. Eh, kind of a stretch here, but Matt, you've got a fun take on it. So how about we give this one right over to you? So Zedru the Greathearted is is my pick. It is a Minotaur Monk. It's a 2-4 for uh, one in Jeskai colors, so red, white, and blue. And Zedru reads, at the beginning of your upkeep, you gain X life, draw X cards, where X is the number of permanents that you own that your opponents control, and you may also pay a red, white, and a blue, and target opponent gains control of target permanent you control. So this one, I mean, when I was first getting into Commander, I, I initially thought, why would I want to give anybody any of my stuff? I work hard for it, I should get to keep it and play it, right? <laughs> But, I mean, there's a political aspect to this commander, clearly. Clearly, but then I started using EDH Rec a little bit and realized, oh yeah, there's a bunch of really bad cards that have a downside that <laughs> I actually don't want. So stuff like Steel Golem, for example, is just an, an artifact creature for three, and it says you can't play creature spells. Well, that's perfect. Why don't you just give somebody your Steel Golem? Uh, there's also an old, old deck that people used to play called Tricks where it was all about giving people using Donate, which just gives target player permanent you control, uh, gives it to them. So you play Illusions of Grandeur, which is an old, old card uh, that is an enchantment for three and a blue, has cumulative upkeep of two, but it reads, when Illusions of Grandeur comes into play, gain 20 life. All right, that's awesome. But when Illusions of Grandeur leaves play, you lose 20 life, and effects that prevent or redirect damage cannot be prevented or used on this card. So basically what happens is you play Illusions of Grandeur, you gain 20 life. That's pretty great. I'd say it's 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 a good start. But then you use something like Donate or Bazaar Trader um, or any of those. Well, you can't use Bazaar Trader because he doesn't do enchantments, but any of those types of effects or just Zedru, give somebody Illusions of Grandeur and then they have to pay the cumulative upkeep every turn. And finally, when they can't, they lose 20 life, which is a, a, a good chunk of life. Not an entire thing because, you know, in Commander you get 40 life, but doing silly little effects like that, and meanwhile you're gaining cards or drawing cards and gaining life, there's a lot of cool little interactions that you can do that at first you think, well, I don't want to give people my stuff, but there is stuff with downside which actually works in your favor. Yeah, her as a donate 
and especially giving people stuff that they don't want, that's been particularly fun. When you first look at this commander, it does seem as though eh, you'd be giving people political favors, but that can be sometimes dicey. Giving them stuff that they don't want is uh, definitely a lot meaner than I would expect a Jeskai commander to be. Yeah, don't trust other people. Just give them an aggressive mining and just watch the chaos unfold. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty darn rude. Another thing that I've actually seen Zedru players occasionally do as well is actually use Zedru as a Voltron. They'll put a bunch of auras or equipment, well, I suppose probably not equipment, but they will put a bunch of auras onto Zedru and then use her ability to give those auras to other people, but they don't remove themselves from Zedru. So then you'd be gaining life and drawing cards and replacing all of those auras in the event that Zedru were to perish herself. It's just a neat way to actually like make use of that ability and draw cards, even though you're not actually giving your opponents any benefit at all. There is a lot of diversity to this commander, even though when you first look at her, it kind of seems like, wait, do I actually want this? Is this actually a good ability? It turns out she's got quite a few tricks up her sleeve. Literally, because that, that was the name of that old deck with Illusions of Grandeur. It was called Tricks, so it only makes sense. <laughs> I gotcha. Alrighty, let's move on now to the other type of category, and Zedru also kind of fits a little bit in with this as well. These are the commanders that look like they want one particular strategy, but actually want something probably a little bit different. They'd be a bit more optimal in a different category that isn't immediately apparent when you first look at them. As an example, I'm going to start us off with the card Mazarek Kral Death Priest. This is a 5-mana Golgari commander. He's a 2-2 Insect Shaman with flying. Not great stats, but he gets a lot better. Whenever a player sacrifices another permanent, you put a plus one plus one counter on each creature you control. And that's any permanent any player sacrifices. If someone else cracks in Evolving Wilds, your stuff gets bigger, and that's fantastic. And when you first look at Mazarek, the immediate impulse is, wait, he says plus one counters, and Green Black has a bunch of plus one counter stuff, like Corpse Jack Menace and Winding Constrictor. Clearly, I want to build a plus one counters deck, right? In my experience, Mazarek has actually not been great for that specific strategy. Yes, some of those synergies can certainly help out, but he's not just going all in on plus one counters. What you actually want to do with Mazarek is amass a huge, ridiculously large token army. Because all that he needs to do is come into play one time, maybe you sacrifice two or three permanents, or you play a single barter in blood and make everyone sacrifice two creatures, and then your entire army gets like plus eight plus eight, and he's functionally become an overwhelming stampede in your command zone. The more tokens you have, the better he is, as opposed to the more plus one counter synergies specifically. What you want to do is go wide with him, not necessarily tall. And that's just one of those commanders that you would look at and it's just like, oh, plus one counters, right? Well, no, maybe rethink and actually try out the tokens instead because it could be more fruitful. Could be. I don't trust you, though. Well, you should never trust me. I play Golgari. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that, that was definitely a commander that, that got dismissed when it came out because it was in that Marin deck. And, and, right, uh, and Marin on the, definitely usurped a lot of the spotlight. Yeah, and on the surface, it just looked like it was a commander trying to do what Marin did, but way, way worse. Yeah, and it turns out it's got something quite a lot different, and in my opinion, quite a lot of fun, but let's be real. Golgari, I can never diss any Golgari commander. I love them too much. As, as right, a necromancer Dana, yourself, that is true. As a necromancer <laughs> myself, indeed. Dana, do you want to tell us about our next counterintuitive commander? Our next counterintuitive commander is Vela the Nightclad. She's six mana, four blue and black, so she's a Demir commander. She has Intimidate, which means this creature can't be blocked except by artifact creatures and or creatures that share a color with it. And she says other creatures you control also have Intimidate. And in addition to both those things, 
Whenever Veil of the Nightclad or another creature you control leaves the battlefield, each opponent loses one life. So what's the initial strategy that people would usually do for Vela? Well, she was originally in a ninja deck. So you'd run her as a commander of your um, ninjas who, when you attack, you bounce them and put another creature into play. So she's dealing damage while you do ninja stuff. I don't know if that was ever very effective, and I don't know if I've ever actually seen anybody do that. Have you guys? Not successfully, no, <laughs> not necessarily. Yeah, I've, and I've, Eureka definitely really took that spotlight and ran with it. Um, yeah, definitely. Be, beyond that, though, I think the the successful versions of this deck I've seen, number one, are some kind of variants, kind of like a Perforos effect, where you make a bunch of tokens or small creatures that you can then sacrifice to something like an Ashen's Altar and just en masse hit everybody for 10 or 12 damage. And there's right, also that the definitely works too. Yeah, and there's also the version, like, I'm running this for a commander, in my version, I'm basically playing it as an artifact deck because of the Intimidate, it lets all my artifact creatures be, for the most part, unblockable. Now, that's what I really love about your Vela deck, and that's the angle that I think is most interesting with her. It's not necessarily the ninjutsu or the leaves the battlefield trigger that you're capitalizing on. It's that the Intimidate makes your colorless stuff impossible to block, so suddenly you've got a very scary artifact commander in blue-black. Yeah, and, and, you know, I run March of the Machines in that deck, which turns all my mana rocks into creatures, too. So it's very easy to, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, have a large army in play that just can't be blocked by 99% of the decks out there. And then you also have the backup plan there if you still then want to have the Ajna's Altar or something in your deck, you can sacrifice those, you know, six or ten creatures to finish people off. And the other nice thing about her, and this is one of those things that's only gotten better over the years, she's a fantastic writer application target. So if you kick her up, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if you kick a writer up <laughs> onto, onto her, you're just going to kill everybody for the most part. But now that we've gotten things like Blade of Selves, you know, put a Blade of Selves on Vela when she swings in, and you're just going to accidentally do six or eight damage, depending on you know how many players are in the game, every time she attacks, and she's it's pretty easy to attack with her because she has Intimidate, you're probably going to get through anyway. Um, Helm of the Host, same thing. It's going to create copies that are going to increase the amount of damage you do when you sacrifice those creatures or whatever. So she's a commander that I don't think was very good in that ninja deck. And as we've gotten more and more ways to do weird things with um, commanders and stack their abilities, she's, she's actually gotten sneakily interesting. Yeah, definitely really, really cool. And I'm excited to finally play against that darn Vela deck of yours as well. I warned everyone on site that was going to be happening, so we'll be ready for you in KC. <laughs> All right. Matt, what are our next counterintuitive commanders? So and I yes, I did say two commanders. Commanders, plural, because they have partners. So Peer, Imagine of Rascal, and Toothy, Imaginary Friend, is the next ones up. So we'll start with Peer. Uh, he is the Imagine of Rascal. He's a 1-1 one, one for two and a green has partner with Toothy, and if one or more counters would be put on a permanent your team controls, you may put plus that many plus one of those type of counters on that permanent instead. So Toothy also deals with counters. Toothy is three and a blue for a one one, also has partner with Peer Imaginative Rascal, and says whenever you draw a card, put a plus one plus one counter on Toothy Imaginative Friend. And then also when Toothy leaves the battlefield, draw a card for each plus one plus one counter on it. So it seems like a very straightforward Simic plus one plus one counters deck, right? Right. You put all your counters on Toothy, 
draw a bunch of cards. Sure, it, it's pretty straightforward, but there's actually a lot that you can do with it. Uh, you can run a lot of blink effects, kind of like what Dana was doing with his uh, his deck tech that he made with uh, Boros and Doing Feather, except you're doing it in Simic colors, so you run stuff <laughs> to, to flicker, toothy, get them out of the battlefield, draw your cards, put them back in, start the process all over again. Well, that's actually the thing. He comes back in before you would draw those cards. So he actually witnesses you drawing those cards and refills on counters right away. And it's gnarly. So he gets big, gets fast. Yeah. Additionally, sometimes what folks will do is actually use clone effects in this particular deck as well. You'll have Toothy in play. You'll play a clone and copy Toothy, but then Legend Rule will eliminate the original Toothy, and your clone, now as a copy of Toothy, when the original Toothy leaves, draws you a bunch of cards, and the clone will get a bunch of counters as well. You're drawing so many cards with this particular interaction that you'll blaze through your deck, and you know exactly where that's going. Laboratory Maniac and the new Jace Planeswalker can win you the game when you would run out of cards in your deck, which is easy to do with a commander that allows you to draw at such a high velocity and so consistently. So it's not even just a plus one counters deck, you're actually playing blink effects and clones, and that's a very different take than one would have expected when you look at them. Yeah, it makes the new clone effect that just came out in War of the Spark extremely powerful because it comes in with a plus one plus one counter already, and it's not even legendary. Oh, the spark double? Yeah, yes. that thing is ridiculous. Yeah, spark double seems like a shoe-in for this type of deck. Like, if you're going for the, the clones and cloning Toothy, yeah, spark double seems like an absolute must-play. And obviously, this is still perfectly fine as a pair for plus one counters, but this is just another build that, you know, may not immediately be apparent to people. Yeah, that, that's definitely a good point here, because some of these commanders aren't good commanders at what they appear to be at, at, at first glance. Pure and Toothy is, if, if you're just going to do a plus one counters is just a better Varel kind of full stop, um, but it's a better Varel that also can do a couple other things, and it's really easy to miss those other things when you're just looking at it being a better Varel. Is that, is that a better Azuri, though? That's the real question. Well, I, think I will have no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. But yeah, and one thing that uh, we should keep in mind, too, is Pierre says any permanent, so it, he makes for a pretty good Super Friends or just an inclusion in any given Super Friends deck, too with War of the Spark and all those Planeswalkers running around, uh, Pierre's actually not a bad option to, to be at the 99, and you can do blue-green and do some dirty Super Friends stuff in Simic too. Yeah, because he gives extra loyalty counters. Mm-hmm. Even when you use their activated abilities, he puts extra counters on those as well, because it's some, some of those particular effects, like doubling season, won't count it when it's a cost, but Pierre does count the extra loyalty counters, even when they're put on there as a cost. So that is actually really, really dirty, and I really, really like it. All right, let's move on now to our next counterintuitive commander. So the next one is just Pierre and Toothy, except we're adding black, and not really just Pierre and Toothy, but Sultai colors. So uh, Damia, Sage of Stone, which is four and Sultai colors. So a green, a blue, and a black for a 4-4 Gorgon Wizard. Damia has Death Touch, and you skip your draw step, which doesn't seem great, but at the beginning of your end step, if or at the beginning of your upkeep, excuse me, if you have fewer than seven cards in hand, draw cards equal to the difference. So every upkeep, you are drawing up to seven cards, which is great. Yeah, and initially, I think my first impression when I saw Damia Sage of Stone was that I would want to make this as like sort of a controlling kind of deck, since I'm always going to be up on card advantage over other people. It seems like a great place to just put all of my Sultai good stuff, right? Right, which is a fine way to do it. 
Uh, you, you don't have to worry about, you know, playing out all your cards because you're just going to draw back up to seven anyways. But there's actually a, a really cool thing that I think is playing a bunch of you may play extra land uh, types of effects. So Azusa or Oracle of Moldiah, stuff like that, uh, even, you know, burgeoning, which gets out of hand really fast and play a landfall deck. Because uh, it's always going to be great to draw back up to seven, so you have you're always going to have multiple lands that you can play every turn, and just having a payoff for that, it's it's a pretty powerful and a lot of upside type of commander to be doing. Yeah, Sultai Landfall because that is going to be one of the easiest types of cards that you could play very quickly to then refuel on a bunch of cards. So that Landfall effect that's great because Azusa can get all those lands that you play very quickly out of your hand as opposed to regular spells that you'd have to pay a bunch of mana for. Right. Yeah, and you know, uh, a card I've recommended on here before, um, Psychic Possession that forces you to skip your draw step and then you draw a card over somebody else draws it. It's a perfect deck for it because you're already skipping your draw step anyway. Huh. That's a really neat take as well. I really like that. Dana, Speaking of neat... <laughs> you dirty dog plugging your own cards. Yeah. Speaking of neat takes, Dana, you've got a neat take on our next counterintuitive commander as well. So we kind of have two that are very similar. I'll start with the the newest of the bunch, Edgar Markov. And Edgar is pretty well known at this point. He has that eminence ability that says whenever you cast a vampire spell, you make a 1-1 vampire token. And this is particularly worth mentioning here because um, this came out before we were doing the cast, but this is the first card that really got me talking to Mr. Matt Morgan here. It's true. Because, it is true. Because when it was first spoiled, everyone was really, really hyped about what a cool commander Edgar was, and they were all like, oh, I'm going to run this and this and this, and Matt and I were both kind of pausing, saying, well, don't you want to no. just run... 25 one-drop vampires? Isn't that way, way, way better? And then as much draw as possible to get more of those, of those vampires and just swarm people? And that's kind of what the strategy is now for Edgar Markov. It's not, I mean, it's a vampire tribal deck, but it's a vampire tribal deck where you're just trying to run as many low, small vampires as possible to just swarm people out. Right, and that's not what I expected at all when I first saw this. I mean, the card Patron of the Vein, that's like a six-mana vampire, and it actually features artwork that uh, one of my friends modeled for for the artist, which is really cool. But honestly, you could make an argument that even a card like Patron of the Vein or Anno on the Ruin Sage or Butcher of Malakir, which are all very expensive, very good, but very, very expensive in mana uh, cards, that they probably don't necessarily need to be in the deck. Edgar Markov himself is basically your top end, and you get so much more value by playing so many other very, very tiny vampires to get as much out of that ability as possible, and then using a very quick anthem to basically use all those tokens to destroy people. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think I played anything more than four mana when I had my Edgar Markov deck together. I mean, it was just very low to the ground, I had a couple of those four drops just for something to give me a little more reach in a multiplayer. Because I mean, if you're playing in a four-person pod, playing mono one drops isn't the best. Like, you're basically going to have your fun, get rid of one person. But everybody else, like, one board wipe and you're kind of done. But yeah, Edgar Markov, you just want to play... Actually, it's a very similar play style to our next commander that we're going to talk about. You just want to play as low to the ground as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the next one we're going to mention here is Edric Spymaster of Trest. And Edric is in Simic Colors, and he's three mana to cast, and just says whenever a creature deals combat damage to someone who isn't Edric's controller, that person draws a card. And this is an example of a card. This, this was from the, I believe, the first Commander set, right? The first pre-con set? 
Yeah, it came, I believe, in the Riku of Two Reflections deck. And I would wager they didn't know what they were making with this card. <laughs> I think that's fair. I think that's that's kind of common amongst yeah. all the all the precons. That, that first year especially. I think this was intended to be a political commander to a degree. The, right. You'd encourage other people to hit yeah. your opponents so that they draw cards. Seems pretty simple. But no. The, turns out no. no. The reality is you don't care what anybody else is doing because you're just playing a gazillion one-drops that have some kind of evasion and drawing all the cards in the world generally to get to an extra turn so you can take an extra turn and swing and draw all the cards in the world to get to the next extra turn and swing and do the same thing until you you know either hit your crater hoof or just have enough damage on the board to kill people anyway. And it's worth noting that there probably are plenty of Edric players out there who want to play an honest political deck. Sure, yeah. Which, now that I say it, is probably a contradiction in terms to say an honest political deck. <laughs> but the point is, Edric has now earned such a notoriety for being that low-drop, ridiculously aggressive type of commander that even that can be a dangerous strategy to try out to be an, quote, honest political deck, just given his pedigree. Yeah, you will have a tough time convincing everyone that you are not playing Edric Flying Man. Right. Yeah, he's pretty ridiculous. And it's so funny to look at both Edgar and Edric completely on the opposite side of the color pie from each other. But they both do promote a very low to the ground strategy that, you know, isn't immediately obvious. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Our next counterintuitive commanders are both Bont Enchantresses, and I'm going to handle these. First up is Estrid the Masked. This is one green, white, and a blue for a three-mana legendary Planeswalker. And she's got a whole bunch of cool abilities, but the most important one is this plus two untap each enchanted permanent you control. Her minus one can also put a totem armor mask on some of your permanents, and her minus seven can sort of do a neat retether effect where you'd mill yourself and then bring a bunch of enchantments back out from your graveyard, which is really cool. But that plus two untapping your enchanted permanents is what's very iconic about Estrid, and which can be very confounding for people who are looking for a Bant Enchantress build. Usually in Bant Enchantress, you just get a bunch of cards like Yavamaya Enchantress and Seder Enchanter that draw you cards with regular enchantments. And those are great, but occasionally you don't always find those. And something that I think a lot of people run into with Estrid is that they feel like they aren't drawing enough cards because they have so much mana. What Estrid can do most efficiently is enchant your lands with things like Market Festival and Dawn's Reflection and Fertile Ground. Those are some of your best enchantments because then she'll untap them. You've got a bunch of mana, which basically kind of means that she's a little bit awkward for a classic enchanter strategy. What you'd actually want to do with her is use all that mana. It's not just that you need to draw cards, it's actually that you need a place to put mana. So mana sinks is really what you need with Estrid. She's kind of like the card Wilderness Reclamation in the command zone, because she's untapping your lands that frequently. She's almost more of a seedborn muse than she is necessarily a specific Enchantress commander. And I don't think that's immediately obvious, but when you start to play her, you realize, man, you need a place to put all that mana. It, you know, and she also makes a really good stacks commander if you are an evil person. Like Don Miner. <laughs> yeah. Right, but I mean, if you want to drop a stasis down or even winter orb, I think stasis is the best way to go because you can use her ability to untap lands to pay for that upkeep on stasis. But she works really well for that, too, if, if that's your jam. And that's, at, that's I, not yes, at all the, obvious looking at the card. 
Yeah, I suppose that's also true. Technically, you can even pull off some nasty combos with her untapping the chain veil and things like that. But suffice it to say, she's doing stuff that isn't just classic Enchantress. She's going to have a lot of mana, so I recommend playing as many mana sinks yeah. in your Estra deck as you really can get away with. Things like Shalai or Chameleon Colossus or Heliod, those will pay off in spades because Estrid is going to make you a lot more mana than it initially looks like she will. Speaking of Bant Enchantresses, we also have Kestia the Cultivator. This is also one green, white, and blue for a 4-4 legendary enchantment creature nymph, and she can bestow if you would like her to, and I think that's a lot of what people are doing. She can actually cast herself as an aura and put herself onto another creature of yours, and she says whenever an enchanted creature or an enchantment creature you control attacks, you draw a card. A lot of what people are doing with Kestia is playing a bunch of those bestow enchantment creatures, in their deck, because then you'll get a bunch of enchantment, enchanted creatures or enchantment creatures. That seems pretty straightforward. But what's kind of weird is that the bestow creatures themselves from the Theros block aren't really all that great. They're kind of like five mana for a 2-2 that flies. It's not entirely effective. So what I actually think is the best build for Kestia is to play control magic effects. The best way to secure a you know an enchanted creature on your side of the field is to use control magic or mind control or persuasion, take someone else's stuff, and then you have an enchanted creature that will draw you cards. She's not an enchantress or a bestow. She's actually a thief. I think yeah, it's it, a unique way to take it. I had I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, I think I mean, that that's the the I think I've seen one Kestia deck and I was genuinely shocked to see that's how it was being played, but it works really really well. It is very nasty, very effective when you're stealing stuff in the colors of Bant. I mean, you look at Bant and you're like, oh, that, those are the nice colors. They do nice things and it turns out no, Kestia's she's a rotten little dirty thief. And she's stealing other people's stuff, and then she's drawing you cards for it. And it's just not immediately what you might notice about her, but it is a very effective way to play that particular commander, as opposed to being, you know, stuck with the bestow creatures, which is definitely a really fun, flavorful build, but some folks might feel a little hamstrung by that strategy, and Kestia does have a lot of other stuff that she can offer, which is really darn cool. Yeah. But enough with the enchantresses. Let's move on to our next counterintuitive commander. The next one we have is Solvala, Explorer Returned. Savala is three mana, so she's pretty low to the ground. One green and a white, so she's right here in Matt Morgan's wheelhouse in Selesnia. My, my territory. My home. She's, she's an elf scout, 2-4, uh, which is a pretty nice butt on a creature there. And she has a parlay ability, which is a tap. Each player reveals a top card of his or her library, and for each non-land card revealed this way, add green to your mana pool, and you gain one life then each player draws a card. So at first glance, that kind of looks like it might be a group hug kind of deck. Yeah, you know, you gain some life and get some mana, but everyone draws the card, so you're giving people stuff. It's perfectly nice, very, very nice Celestia. Dana loves it. I, yeah, it's, it's great. That's not really how it winds up playing, though, with the really effective builds. Pretty often it gets used as a milling combo engine where it's just trying to get down to some kind of pieces to win because the more cards that get put into the graveyard, the more cards that get revealed, the more mana you get. 
Right, that's what's so nasty about Silvala. She forces everyone to draw that card. So if you can use things like Umbral Mantle and a bunch of mana dorks or Paradox Engine effects to get a bunch of that mana, you can repeatedly untap Silvala, then tap her and force everyone to draw cards. And as long as you can, you know, reshuffle your own library, everyone else is going to mill out because you've made them draw their entire deck. And it's surprisingly cruel. And surprisingly not probably what was intended for Silvala. <laughs> when they signed her <laughs> no. either. Um, but it's it, it, some of these we've suggested are just kind of interesting and fun ways to play. This build of Savala is genuinely really, really strong. Uh, yeah, making mana on your commander can be really effective. Even Savala's new version was really, really yeah. dangerous for that exact reason. Yeah, both those Savalas are, are fantastic power level commanders. Alrighty, our next counterintuitive commander is Animar, Soul of the Elements. And Matt, I'm going to hand this one off to you. I can do that. So Animar, Soul of the Elements, he is teamer colors, so a red, a blue, and a green for a 1-1. It's not really a great rate, I don't think. But he has more text, luckily. Oh, uh, that's good. So, so Animar reads, uh, has protection from white and from black, so it's a good start. Whenever you cast a creature spell, put a plus one, plus one counter on Animar, Soul of the Elements. Also good. And creatures, creature spells you cast cost one less for each plus one, plus one counter on Animar. So at first you think, okay, this means a decent mid-range strategy, kind of ramp up and do some stompy stuff. Not a bad take, though, but there's there's a lot more you can be doing with it. Uh, one thing that I've seen a lot of Animar players do is go the morph strategy. So you play a bunch of morph creatures that you just pay three, put them face down, and you have a creature there, and it puts a counter on there. Then your next morph costs two, and then your next morph costs one. And finally, you just start playing free morph creatures, and you kind of combo out and you play stuff uh, like Primordial Sage, where whenever you cast a creature spell, you draw a card. Or Soul of the Harvest, where whenever you or whenever a non-token creature enters the battlefield under your control, you draw a card. And you just churn through your deck and kind of combo out, like I said. And you do some fun stuff like Cloudstone Curio, even, which is a really fun artifact. Uh, <laughs> fun for you. Fun I think. for me. So Cloudstone <laughs> Curio, I have a good history with because he did major work. Well, it did ma major work with Edgar Markov, but Cloudstone Curio is an artifact for three. It says whenever a non-artifact permanent comes into play under your control, you may return another permanent you control that shares a permanent type with it to its owner's hand. So if you play a free morph you draw a card, and then you bounce your other morph. And then you play that free morph again, bounce the other morph, draw some more cards, and you just go through your whole deck. Cloudstone Curio is, in, in the decks that it's good in, it is insanely good. And it, yeah, and, it and this is no exception. And it doesn't even have to just be a combo engine. You're, the counters that you're putting on Animar are plus one counters, it's also really easy to just get Animar infinitely big to either swing through and kill somebody or use, you know, some kind of a creature deals direct damage based on its power to a player ability, like Souls Fire and Red. Um, there's just a bunch of different lines of play when you're doing those abusive things in Animar, and none of them are really readily apparent when you're first looking at the card. Right. I, mean, I think what's... Oh, it makes Ancestral Statue a, a combo piece on its own, which is just a four-mana... Uh, artifact creature, it's a 3-4, and it says whenever Ancestral Statue enters the battlefield, return a non-land permanent you control to its owner's hand. So if you have four counters on Animar, you can just play Ancestral Statue and bounce itself, and then replay Ancestral Statue and bounce itself, and then you have an infinitely big Animar to just one-shot somebody. So that Tasa Karlov player, probably going to be a little sad. 
I feel like that was directed at me because I am a Tessa Karloff player. I am a Tessa Karloff player. Thank you very much. Okay, so we're both going to be sad. Perfect. That's exactly how Animar likes it. I think what's most impressive to me about Animar with a Morphs strategy is just that I never expected Morphs to be any good in EDH at all. I really didn't did not expect them to ever have a home, but Animar gives them not just, you know, oh, this is kind of a cute idea of a home. He gives them a very good one. It's actually surprisingly powerful for this particular strategy, and that's really refreshing to see. Uh, all those free creatures face down, who knows what they could be. This Animar morphs, Animorphs strategy is really, really cool, and I'm glad to see that that's an additional take for this guy that was not something that I ever would have expected when I first looked at him. And, and one thing I should briefly mention here, too, the protection colors on Animar are Very relevant. a genuinely big deal. Um, <laughs> yeah, pro black and white. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've I've gone into this before talking about righteous war, but but that's more than three quarters of the removal spells of the top twenty removal spells in Commander can hit Animar. Yeah, that seems like a pretty darn good rate. Yeah, I mean, I like I've played multiple games against an Animar where we flip over our commanders, and I'm just like, oh, I'm just never going to be able to interact with that commander, just period. So it, yeah. th- th- that's entirely relevant, and again, it doesn't, when you first see it, you don't realize how important that is until you actually play the game. Yeah, he's got a lot of tricks up his sleeve, whether he's doing morph or he's doing infinite stuff. NMR isn't just a mid-range stompy deck, he's got a lot of other stuff going on. This next counterintuitive commander is a personal inclusion. It's kind of subtle, I will hope that I do a good job at explaining this. This is Lazav Demir Mastermind. So he's blue, blue, black, black for a 3-3 shapeshifter with hexproof. And he says whenever a creature card is put into an opponent's graveyard from anywhere, you may have Lazav Demir Mastermind become a copy of that card, except its name is still Lazav Demir Mastermind. It's legendary in addition to its other types, and it gains hexproof and this ability. This is kind of a weird thing. I myself did attempt to build a Lazav deck, and because he likes turning into other creatures and can do so most efficiently when they're put into the graveyard from anywhere, I figured, sweet, let's mill out my opponents. I'm gonna put a bunch of things like Consuming Aberration and Phoenix, God of Deception, and a bunch of other effects that will mill out my opponents, and that's how I'm gonna win this game, and he'll become whatever their best creature is as I'm milling it. But the more that I played Lazav, the more that I realized the mill strategy is not actually what he wants to do. At least, not the way that I was building him. And maybe I was building him bad, but in my experience, he was much more suited to simple, traditional reanimator stuff. You mill a couple of cards from other people's decks so that he can become a copy of one thing, but once he's a copy of a good creature, he doesn't need to keep changing, and he's going to be much more practical killing your opponents through traditional combat means once he becomes a good creature, as opposed to continuing to mill them out the rest of the 70 or 60 cards that you'd have to get from everyone else anyway. This was kind of a weird discovery of mine, but that's why I wanted to include him. This blue-black mill commander didn't actually seem very well suited to mill, just to some pretty traditional graveyard stuff that would hit people with their own creatures. Yeah, and the fact that he has, is it hexproof baked in? <laughs> yeah, it makes it really good too. Yeah. Honestly, I could even see people wanting to build Lazava as a Voltron, if for nothing else than he has traditional, natural, just fresh off the earth, hexproof. It's so darn good to have no worries in the world about removal baked right into your commander. Yeah, super, super useful commander. Um, I've only seen one deck out in the wild with Lazav, with this version of Lazav in particular. And again, it was it was a commander that when I saw it in that set, didn't ring any bells with me and actually seeing the deck get played really was kind of an eye-opening experience. 
Yeah, very, very interesting to see that. I always think of, oh, blue-black mill, that's what we gotta do. But there was actually a very subtle shift there that I was happy to see because I am a reanimator player. Maybe that's actually what's happening. I just wanted to build Lazav as a reanimator and I'll sort of be like Don Miner who can turn any commander into stacks. I'll turn any commander into reanimator. Maybe I'm actually just being biased. I don't know. I think that what we should do is move on to our next commander so that I can stop talking about reanimating. We can do that. Well, we'll 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 talk about another Sultai commander, and I'm I'm kind of wondering if you gave me this one on purpose, but it's Tassiger the Golden Fang. <laughs> Luckily, this one isn't going to be doing any reanimating. No, no reanimating. Oh, none at all. No, but so Tassiger Golden Fang is five and a black for a four five with delve, so you can get rid of cards from your graveyard to, to lower the cost by one for each card. And Tasker has an activated ability. It's two and hybrid uh, Simic color, so a blue-green and a blue or a blue-green. And it reads, put the top two cards of your library into your graveyard, then return a non-land card of an opponent's choice from your graveyard to your hand. So at first you think, okay, you're going to you know, recur some stuff, maybe play the control game. But it's actually not a bad political commander because you, you, you do give your opponents a choice Maybe say make a bargain. Hey, give me this card back, and I'll answer this for you. And I won't use this card against you later. Uh, it makes for some interesting decisions that opponents have to make on your behalf. Yeah, that's really cool. He's like a skull winder in the command zone, where you're able to get back removal spells at the behest of someone else to do cool political plays and survive longer in the game. Yeah, it, it's interesting because you can get. Wrath's back, and and if you're playing anything to give them instant speed, you can, you know, pay four mana, get a damnation back, and then play it, and you know, save yourself or however you want to play it around. So it's it's pretty interesting. Uh, your opponents can almost you know use you as a resource some games, but then eventually you're going to find a way because you are playing Sultai. You're in it for yourself, really. You're going to find a way. <laughs> you're going to find a way to win the game for yourself too. Well, that's just one of the things that's so fascinating about this particular commander. When you see Sultai, yeah, you're just like, these are the colors that represent a whole lot of selfishness. They're going to be very focused on doing their own stuff. But Tassiker is actually, you know, the kind of commander that can unexpectedly reach across the aisle to make deals with other people. And that's just not the kind of strategy that you necessarily would have expected when you first looked at him. Well, and it's also a commander that once the the thing starts happening and, and they have a little bit of control over their graveyard, you get in a position where no choice you make for the cards presented to you is good. Like whatever they, whatever option they're going to get back is going to be something that's going to cause you to get further and further behind. And that's what I've really noticed with this deck. When I first read the card, I thought, okay, well, they're going to get, you know, something back, but you're going to have plenty of choices. The deck tends to sculpt the graveyard so effectively, both by recasting Tassiger and just running things to let them sculpt it, that you really quickly get in a position where if they use that Tasker ability, it's just a lose-lose for you. Yeah, definitely really, really powerful no matter how you slice it, but it's cool to see that he's got some different political applications to it as well. That's just not the kind of thing that I usually expect from my Sultai commanders. For sure. All right, up next we have definitely a friendly commander, Tulsimir, friend to wolves. He is the, he is the leader of the goodest boy clan. He's so friendly. <laughs> I'm going to steal this one because it is Selesnia and it is dealing with, with canines. Yep. I had uh, to give it to you. That's true. But uh, Tulsimir, Friend of Wolves, is two green, green, and a white for a 3 3 elf scout. When Tulsimir, Friend of Wolves, enters the battlefield, create Voja, Friend of Elves, of legendary 3 3 green and white wolf creature token. 
and also reads whenever a wolf enters the battlefield under your control, you gain three life and that creature fights up to one target creature you don't control. So at first you think, okay, you're making tokens. It is legendary, but you know, you can do some wolf tribal. It's really fun. It's not hound tribal, so a little false, but I'm just being very picky, holding my Selesnia commanders to a very high standard. But there's also something really cool that you can do uh, and it's kind of a, a land stacks type of deck where you reanimate all the lands. And so whenever those creatures are entering, entering the battlefield, you start picking off people's lands. And this was something that Don Miner, the, the person <laughs> who started EDH rec, he was like, I really want to build Tulsimir, but I, I feel like I'm going to end up with a stacks deck. And this was the what he kind of came to the conclusion of. Right, using things like Living Plane to turn all those lands into creatures, making wolves, and eating people's lands. He's a monster, but we'd re be remiss if we didn't mention that strategy here when we're talking about unexpected directions for commanders. It's true, yeah. Natural affinity, turn everything into two twos, and then pick everything off. I can get behind that. Selesnia stacks, definitely counterintuitive. Very. Well, <laughs> well just like Tulsimir is a new card from War of the Spark, we also have Niv-Mizzet Reborn a card we just recently talked about, and I think we were all uh, among ourselves kind of stuck for what to do with Niv-Mizzet. We kind of talked about you could do some fun guild stuff. We talked about using him as kind of default five-color commander when you just want to do five-color good stuff or five-color planeswalkers, whatever it would be. But it was kind of interesting last week on the show talking to Cameron, him talking about them in CEDH using this for a food chain commander. And that was something that had never remotely occurred to me. Yeah, it's sort of supplanting General Tazri in competitive EDH, I think. Which was a fantastically powerful commander already in that format. And this is, again, based on what we're hearing from those people that play that format, a better version of that deck. Right. Definitely interesting, because when we first saw it, we were kind of like, eh, this doesn't seem like it's doing a whole bunch of stuff for us. But there is that food chain combo that the folks in competitive EDH are using. But also, another kind of thing that I think is interesting about Niv-Mizzet Reborn is that he doesn't seem best suited to just sort of a general five-color deck. In my opinion, you have to curate it very carefully, because he seems best suited for much more of a control strategy than I first initially would have expected. Some of the best spells that he can grab with that ability were he takes two color spells off the top 10 cards of your deck a lot of the best two color spells in the game they're going to be removal spells mortify putrefy anguished unmaking wind grace's judgment terminate assassin's trophy wear and tear utter end sylvan reclamation a bunch of the two color spells that i want in a deck are going to be removal spells and that gives them a lot of controlling capital yeah, for sure. In addition to, you know, not all of the um, guild charms are amazing, but probably half of them are really, really, really good. And it, he winds up kind of being a pretty effective toolbox commander between all the good removal spells and the charms that can do multiple different things. There's just going to be a lot of really versatile cards going into your hand when Niv comes into play. Yeah, exactly. And then that mention of removal spells also kind of brings me to my final sort of honorable mention for this counterintuitive Commander's episode. And I just want to give a quick shout out to Dana's very favorite archetype, Group Hub. Yeah. No. So friendly. No. <laughs> yes, we know your thoughts on Group Hug, Dana, but... Even though you're a monster who doesn't like having friends, I do occasionally dabble in group hug, and it's a lot of fun, but I think there are some misunderstandings about how group hug works. And frankly, 
group hug, which is thought to simply give things away to people and to make deals in exchange for things, you know, you're giving other stuff to other people, I actually kind of want to correct that misunderstanding a little bit and mention that your best political cards in a group hug strategy are actually your removal spells, because those can be your bargaining chips against other players. In my experience, group hug is actually very good not just at giving people stuff, but actually at taking it away as well. And that is probably counterintuitive when people look at the original definition of group hug. And that's just why I wanted to give it a quick shout out here because it can really throw people for a loop when those group hug decks start taking away all the stuff that they gave you and then taking away even more as well. I, I just want to label Joey as the group hug apologist of the group of the podcast. Hey, hey, I will terminate you with my removal spells, Stop. my very group hug friendly removal spells, and then I will reanimate you. You can't, that is you what can't do. make a card pun and then not say that you didn't laugh at my Carplusen Yeti. <laughs> Fine, I just laughed at it. I just laughed at it now. Fine, yes, you are indeed funny. And that's why I'm going to terminate you and then reanimate you, Matt. That no. is why. You should just utter end me and I, I'm, I'm done. I, yeah. I've been well, ex- I dare say, I've exiled myself. Just I dare say we're reaching the utter end of this particular show. So how about we move on to our final segment, challenging the stats. There are a whole lot of statistics here on EDH Rec, but we don't always feel that they are correct. Sometimes we think cards are overplayed or underplayed, so we'd like to challenge them a bit now. Matt, since you're being so precocious, how about you start us off? I'm not precocious. Mary Poppins is precocious in her super califragilistic expialidocious songs, but... I will give you a challenge of stats. So my challenge of stat for this week is Argivian Find. It is a single white mana for an instant that just says return target artifact or enchantment card from your graveyard to your hand. Seems like a pretty good recursion engine just to get some cast triggers out of your artifacts or enchantments, either or. But it is only an 850 decks total. You look at the top commanders, the number one commander with 34 decks is Isamaru, Hound of Conda. Huh. But then you get into some actual, you know, artifact or enchantments type commanders. You have Sidri, Galvanic Genius, only 31 decks, uh, 30 Zur the Enchanter decks. It, there's just not a whole lot going on here with this, but it's actually just for a simple white mana. We talk about how you want to be efficient. I like lowering my curve lately. Dana's been rubbing off on me with this whole, you know, just get stuff out of the way quick, ramp your mana at two, all that kind of fun stuff. It's just a very good card. Just We talk about regrowth as a very powerful effect for two green mana if you don't want to play Eternal Witness and you're not doing anything with the body. I think that if you are playing any sort of you know, Voltron with artifacts or auras or anything like that, Argivian Find is just a very powerful, very efficient card that you just get your best thing back. Um, if you want to pay one mana to get your Eldrazi Conscription back to your hand, I think that's a pretty good trade-off. So what would you say to folks who would rather run cards like Refurbish, which is four mana in white that can return an artifact just straight onto the battlefield? Why would you play or giving find over a card like Refurbish? Uh, like I said, I think if there's some types of uh, decks that, you know, maybe say you're playing an Enchantress deck where you, every time that you cast an enchantment card, you're going to get draw triggers off of your uh, Argothian mm. Enchantress, stuff like that. Or uh, what is the card that whenever you play an artifact spell in blue, is the uh, Vidalcan something, I'm sure. Um, but you get cast there's, triggers. Yeah, there's a few. Yeah, so anything that you want to cast trigger on those types of cards, or, I mean, if you're playing a four-color Mishra deck, for example, you get something back to your hand and however you want to do it. So, And it's just a good, you know, say somebody tries to 
play some graveyard hate and they want to get rid of your powerful thing in the graveyard, it's a good way to rescue at the last second too. And you know, there's also a lot of decks where the artifact package, particularly if you're talking white or boros, is just kind of fairly basic and it's low to the ground anyway. They're, you know, right. you're running Expedition Map and Wayfarer's Bobble and maybe Dispeller's Capsule and Mindstone and so is it worth spending four mana to bring that ex, ex, or excuse me, Executioner's Capsule, not Executioner's Dispeller's Capsule, or bringing that Wayfarer's Bobble back into play? Or is it worth spending one mana to have it go to hand and then one to recast it? Like, I think a lot of times it's just more efficient to run our Givian Find. Sometimes. Interesting. Yeah, it depends. And a lot of times, like, you, you made a really good point. If you're playing straight Boros or white, basically if you're playing those artifact decks that aren't blue, uh, this is probably as good as it's going to get as far as having some sort of recursion engine back. Because if it's powerful the first time, chances are it's going to be powerful the second time. Alrighty, pretty interesting stuff. Dana, I think your next pick is also an artifact that could be retrieved with our Givian find. It, it technically could be, but this is one specifically um, inspired by one of the commanders we discussed today, which was Veil of the Nightclad, and it's Precursor Golem. And I'm talking about <laughs> running Precursor Golem in that Vela deck. Currently on EDH Rec, there's only 11 Vela decks running Precursor Golem. And for those who don't remember, that's a 5-mana artifact creature. Uh, it's a 3-3, but when it comes into play, you create two additional 3-3 colorless Golem artifact creature tokens. And whenever a player casts an instant or sorcery spell that targets only a single Golem, that player copies that spell for each other golem that spell could target. Each copy targets a different one of those golems. So in a Vela deck, first of all, where like uh, in mine, for example, or the Intimidate matters, it's giving you nine damage worth of unblockable creatures that can swing through. That's really, really useful. But beyond that, it's a deck where I'm already running things like Rider Application for the option to throw it onto Vela to kill the table. Well, if you throw a Rider Rep onto a Precursor Golem, it's going to make 28 Golems. Because if the copy is going to copy, if, if you kick it, it's going to copy that kicked copy onto each additional Golem. It's, the math on that gets very, very, very distressing yeah, well, very if you, quickly. If you do it a second time, it makes over 4 million Golems. Yeah, that's math I cannot do. So what if you have a Cathar's Crusade in play as well? Stop it. Then everyone Stop just it, le no. everyone just leaves. Everyone concedes at instant <laughs> speed, and yeah, they, you win. They probably punch you for doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but it just synergizes really well with a lot of stuff Vela decks want to already be doing, whether it's, you know, Sword of the Animus, same thing. If you put a sword on it, when it attacks, it's going to make, you know, additional golems that bring then more friends with them. So it just synergizes really well with a bunch of things most Vela decks already want to be doing anyway, and it should be in way more than 11 Vela decks. Sword of the Animus, did you mean Blade of Selves? Oh, sorry, Blade of Selves, yeah. Cool, I just wanted to yep, make sorry, sure I was no, on board. Yeah, Blade of Selves. Yeah, no, I actually really like that pick. I would love to see it in Vela. My pick for this one is going to be also for a commander that we discussed earlier, and this is a pick for Zedru the Great Hearted, because I don't think Matt showed her the, the respect that she deserves. I gave her plenty of respect, thank you very much. Well, I want to give her even more, because okay, there's a card that fair. I don't think that people are playing nearly enough in Zedru decks. That's the card Delaying Shield. This is three and a white for an enchantment that says if you would be dealt damage, you put that many delay counters on Delaying Shield instead. 
Sounds great. There is a drawback to this card though, which is why it doesn't see much play. It's in less than 700 decks on EDH rec. And that drawback is that at the beginning of your upkeep, you remove all delay counters from delaying shield. For each counter removed this way, you lose one life unless you pay one and a white, which you're never gonna be able to keep up with. That's just ridiculous. But the cool thing about this card is that in Zedru, it is one of the best bargaining chips and the best rattlesnakes that you can possibly have. If an opponent wants to come at you, all of that damage that they deal to you will be instead put onto Delaying Shield, and then Zedru can use her activated ability to swoop, put that Delaying Shield under the opponent's control, and they would lose how'd, all that life how'd instead. How'd that go again, Joey? Swoop. It is, you have to make the sound effect when you I don't you know if that's ability. a technical term, so I'm gonna have to get back to you on if we're gonna allow swoop it's in to the, be canon. It's in the oracle text of Zedru, actually. Oh, okay. it's, you have to pay a red, a white, a blue, and say the words swoop, and then you give the delaying shield to other people, and they take the damage instead of you. This card doesn't appear on Zedru's EDHREC page at all, and I think that is just criminal. It shows up in probably less than like 4% of Zedru decks or something like that, and that just should not be the case. It's a great rattlesnake, and Zedru will be very happy if you add it to her 99. You should swoop it into your decks, apparently. <laughs> Stop making fun of me, Matt. I'm very sensitive <laughs> about this type of thing, and I'm going to give you a delaying shield if you continue. Uh, you're going to give me one anyways. <laughs> I thought he was making a salt and pepper joke. Oh. I don't know. I'd be able <laughs> oh, to make man. any type of joke. He badly aged oh. myself. Yes, you did. <laughs> Alrighty. Any other final notes that we have on counterintuitive commanders, commanders that don't seem like they'd work or that feel like they're leaning towards one strategy but actually can be pulled in a different direction? Any other final thoughts, fellas? Uh, we definitely would love to hear from all the listeners. If you guys have a deck that you took off the beaten path, I mean, if you made a Valduck deck that wasn't equipment, I would like to see it at least. Yeah, Mr. Matt Valduck Morgan definitely wants to see all of the Valduck builds I do. for sure. I, I can appreciate a good Valduck list. Matter of fact, you should bring that deck to Magic oh, Fest Kansas City and show Matt your, uh, your cool, unique take on Valduck. And then I'll play my typical Valduck deck because... I just love one-trick ponies. <laughs> well, that's what's been so cool about this particular you know, show topic, this particular exercise. Thinking of commanders that do something different than you would traditionally expect, it's nice to think outside of the box sometimes, and I really appreciate seeing all these commanders that make me scratch my head a little bit, and I just think that's really darn cool. But with that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me, and if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? You can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana. You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach, and you can hear me twice a week on my other creator podcast, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDHREC and the cast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Plus, you can find us on iTunes, and if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast as well. This cast is posted every week on EDHREC's community content spotlight session, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDHREC your deck before you wreck your deck. little afraid now of the guy who's going to be picking me up from the airport when I arrive in GP Kansas City. Um, I will be wearing a tire. <laughs> That's not a tire with two T's. That's a space tire. No, I'll be, I'll be on four of those. 
That's how cars work, Jerry. Because they, they need four cars like to move forward. <laughs> oh, we, oh, we, we got get you. it. We get it. I, the wheels on the bus go round and round. Remember that song? Yeah, we sang it yesterday in class. Okay, that's that's good. That's a, you're learning. 